Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Gaia Suda and the Fall of Indian America, Brady Kreitzer. Brady Kreitzer, author of Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America. Um, Gaia Sutta shows up in a lot of different uh, aspects of American history that you write about. Why isn't he more famous? Gaia Sutta is, is somewhat of a, a quizzical figure, I think, for me. Um, even if you look around the city of Pittsburgh, and this is a story that goes far beyond western Pennsylvania, uh, you see no less than four very large statues of him. Uh, there's one enormous mural of his face. Uh, he is a kind of person that is confusing for people who aren't involved in history uh, because of lack of name recognition. But even for individuals who, who practice history for a living, even if they know who he is and what he did, it's very hard for them to determine uh, what it really means. And I think that's sort of the crux of this book. He's a figure that, on his own, uh, has a relatively extraordinary life, I would say, uh, in that he is sort of given a front row seat for the major events throughout colonial America that really see the collapse of his own Indian world. So through his life using it as a lens, I think you get a much better view and a much clearer view of just the struggles of the native peoples as America develops from a colonial holding into a free nation. How are you able to find records about him? I mean, you have his, his birth date in 1724, something like that, and, and some conversations about meetings he had with different people. What kind of records are there? This is the challenge of dealing with native peoples. There is no written language uh, for the Native American. Language is not something that's found in their tradition, written language that is. Uh, so the sources we have to use are Europeans' encounters with them. We have a relative birth date for Gaia Suda of 1724, but that could be 1725. Uh, even his death date is fluctuating between 1794 and 1795. So when you deal with these sources, you have to understand going in you're going to be using European interpretations and accounts of encounters with Indian peoples. Now, again, up until the last 30 years or so, as historians, uh, we really didn't have the firm grasp on Indian culture we have today. So when you're dealing with Gaia Sutta, you have to do it, or any native chief for that matter, in terms of a biography, with the scope and the understanding that you're going to be using sources that you wouldn't traditionally have uh, with a larger biography. We don't have memoirs. We don't have volumes in archives. We have secondhand or firsthand accounts of his life. So it does give you somewhat of an incomplete story at times. But again, uh, this book on Gaia Suda isn't as much a biography of him as it is using his lens to clarify a much bigger time period. And I think that's important because generally with biographies, you have so much information. These end up being uh, 700, 800, 900 page books, multiple volumes. You won't have that with a native chief of the 18th century. Uh, but when you go into this with the understanding of how to use the sources appropriately and more importantly, how to interpret those sources, uh, you get a much clear understanding. Can you paint a picture of what it, it meant to be, the, what the Indian tribes were like at the time in, 
in this part of Pennsylvania, this part of uh, the colonies in, uh, in the early 1700s? I like to always say, uh, when we think of colonial North America, we should always think of it as an, a, a continent of three empires. We know the British on the eastern seaboard, we know the French in Canada, but we must not discredit the power that the native peoples had in this time. And the dominant power in the native world was the Iroquois Confederacy. They extended in somewhat of an arc uh, going west to east uh, through upstate New York uh, and parts of uh, western Pennsylvania. They were the Seneca, the Cayuga, the Onondaga, the Oneida, and the Mohawk. The Tuscaroras will come in, but they are effectively uh, a collection of six nations, and they're what we'd call a confederacy. They're politically aligned, but they maintain their separate identities. They align themselves politically when it benefits them. So when you want to understand the Indian power base in North America at this time, in the Northeast, the Iroquois were the dominant, and I call them empire. Certainly superpower is acceptable. Uh, in uh, the region of the life of Gayasuta, uh, he was a Seneca. So he's born in New York's Genesee River Valley, which is effectively just north of western Pennsylvania if you're seeking the geography on it. And he is very much the product of uh, an emerging empire. And as a historian of empire, that's something that I relish. He's a character that really lets you evaluate old sources in new ways. Uh, the best way of thinking of the Iroquois in the imperial spectrum is by judging them on what other empires do and what they do that's similar. Uh, one of the ways I talk about the Iroquois is the way they deal in 1640, which is again a century before Gaiasuta. Uh, like all empires, they have to grow in order to remain powerful. If you're, if you're uh, not growing, if you're stagnant, then you're effectively shrinking and in the imperial world that means you're losing. Uh, but they go on a campaign to conquer the Ohio country, which is western Pennsylvania, and the state of Ohio today. And the way they choose to do it, the Iroquois, is by essentially exterminating everybody within the Ohio country who's already there, the Erie and the Susquehannock Indians along the way. Now, after they do that, they control the Ohio country nominally. Uh, but to be the real supreme power, they have to assert themselves in a more physical and present way. And the way they choose to do it is not indifferent than the way that the English did when they began to move into North America. They move people who live the way they do, who promote their way of life into the territory. So the Iroquois will effectively colonize the Ohio country with uh, Seneca and Cayuga members. They're the westernmost members. And these people begin to, uh, again, populate the region. Uh, and they begin to assert their control that way. So effectively, if you are not a member of the Iroquois Confederacy and you're in the territory we're thinking, uh, western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, this area that's very much up for grabs in the French and Indian War, uh, you are then a subject of the Iroquois Confederacy. So that is the general hierarchy. Well, I want to read you this part. In, uh, early in the book you say, despite his bloodline and heritage, Gayasuta would not simply assume a position of power as was the case in European empires, he had to earn it on the field of battle. So was, was war kind of an, an everyday occurrence? Was it a way of life with the, the Indians at the time? It's important we remember that when we think about the collision of the Indian world, the existing American world, and the European world, and this goes back to the earliest uh, encounters, even as early as Columbus, you're seeing two fundamentally different worlds come together. Uh, the Western world traces its roots from a very long uh, heritage, and we can go back to the Mesopotamians for the beginning of that. But the American world, this native world, 
comes from a completely different background. So they don't just speak different languages and eat different foods. They fundamentally view their world differently. And in the Indian world, uh, the way you would gain esteem for, a, for a, say, a young man or a man emerging into adulthood uh, would be through the field of battle, through martial combat. It's very much a warrior culture. Uh, in a young age, uh, young men will be trained to fight, not indifferent than you'd see in ancient Sparta, is the example I always use. It's just almost in their cultural DNA that war is uh, an ultimate and defining feature of life. Uh, in the Western world, we tend to put a lot of stress and value on wealth, who has the most stuff, right? It's why we keep up with the Kardashians, if you want to say that. Uh, but in the Indian world at this time, again, it's very much a show-me-what-you-have sort of experience, lead from the front. So Gayasutta, as an example, uh, would have some hereditary power. Uh, he is, for example, uh, a Seneca. He's born in the Genesee River Valley, but he's living in the Ohio country. Uh, far away from his ancestral homeland. Uh, the peoples of the Ohio country would look to him as some form of leadership, but it wouldn't be his by birth. He would have to earn it. And it's something I would say he did with uh, some devastating effectiveness. He was a Sashem, is that how you pronounce it? S-A-C-H-E-M, right. what is that? That's how you that? would say that. Uh, it's a word we could use for chief or chieftain. Um, it, it's, chief is sort of our version of that word. Uh, every culture has that. He's a cultural and political leader. So it's a way we, we think of it. He's not an elected official. So um, it's, it's probably the, the proper terminology at the time. And of the Mingos, he was of the Mingos. Who are the Mingos? Okay, this is a very interesting question. And it's one that is astounding to me how few people understand it. And it's part of the beauty of history. I always say history is not about uh, finding something new. Uh, it's about looking at something old in a new way. And here's what you have with the Mingo. So we've already mentioned the fact that the Iroquois took to colonization of the Ohio country to assert control. The Mingo are effectively those former Seneca and Cayuga colonists who after three, four, five generations have been brought up in the Ohio country. It's not indifferent than the way the British think of the Americans. Technically, the American colonists uh, are British. That's part of their identity. But the Americans are developing a new identity, right? Suddenly it becomes more important to be Amer uh, American than British. And that's where we see the American Revolution. The Mingo are very similar. The Mingo are former Iroquois colonists who have latched on to this new Ohioan identity uh, and have sort of forsaken or at least uh, asserted that that identity has superseded their previous Iroquois identity. Was there friction between the Mingos and their, their Iroquois uh Leaders? Empire is a wonderful thing because of the different dynamics at play. We tend to think of colonial America as a very homogenous place, particularly the Indian world, but it's a very complicated, very structured, very diverse experience. Uh, at the beginning of the French and Indian War, the uh, traditional story goes you have the British on one side and the French on the other, and the Indians were somewhere in between, and that's typically how we as a society leave it, but uh, you have to understand history is, is never black and white, it's entirely gray. And as historians, we live in the gray. That's where we find the new material to interpret, to, to bring forward. So when the French and Indian War comes to North America, it changes the game for everyone involved. The British have a strong ally in the Iroquois Confederacy. They've had about a 50-year-old agreement with the Iroquois Confederacy that Great Britain and the Iroquois have mutual interests to work together. 
The French, again, are seeking to expel the British from North America, and they know they can't do it without a strong Indian ally, particularly in the Ohio country. So if you are the French, you have to sort of ask yourself this question. Uh, the Iroquois will never join us. Does that mean we're out of the game? No, it means that you have to look elsewhere for your allies. So what the French will do is go to the Ohio country and say, if the Iroquois don't have us, uh, who will work with us? And the people they go after uh, are the subjects of the Iroquois. Uh, we have the Mingo who live there, these sort of latent Iroquois colonists, but the Ohio country has also been populated by refugees. And this is something the Iroquois have took to using to, again, strengthen their influence. The Delaware people have been pushed further westward by the Penn family and the expanding Pennsylvania colony. And the Shawnee are a refugee people who have also lived in the Ohio country. The deal for them was, uh, for the Iroquois, you can live here, uh, but if you do, the Iroquois control you. So the Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo, we collectively call the Ohioans, uh, they are approached by the French at the beginning of the, of the French and Indian War, and they are basically posed this proposition. If you stay and fight with your masters, the British will win, the Iroquois will always control you. If you come fight with us, if the British lose, the Iroquois lose, and the imperial yoke is off your shoulders. So most of the Iroquois didn't see this coming that the Mingo were actually uh, sort of a renegade element. They believed that the Mingo would always keep the Ohio country under Iroquois control. By the time they figured out that the Mingo were actually in rebellion along with the Delaware and Shawnee, the collective Ohioans, it was already too late, and you saw the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War begin. Well, the, the uh, litany of historic events Guy Suta was present for is, is pretty long. So well, let's start off with one that you described is um, a, a trip George Washington took from uh, Virginia to the French to warn them to get their forts out. And Guy Asuda was present for that? You're going to see George Washington a lot in this book. And the reason that I include him is that he has these interesting interactions with Guy Asuda throughout their lives. And they're both uh, so indicative of the real complexity of colonial North America. You have Guy Asuda really a man in his 20s between two worlds. He has an Iroquois bloodline, but he's identifying himself culturally with the Ohioans, so much so that he's considering war against the Iroquois when the French and Indian War begins. You have George Washington, who's 21, uh, the picture of Americanism, who's wearing the red coat of the British Empire and is entirely committed to climbing the British ladder of success. So you have, again, two men that really embody just how difficult and stratified and complicated this story really is. Washington's mission on the eve of war uh, is effectively to march to Fort Le Bouf to tell the French uh, they must leave and the French will politely decline and we see hostilities begin. Guy Asuta marches on that mission but he's not a leader in the traditional sense. He is a 29 year old man who's very much learning on the job behind three other Iroquois chiefs in their 50s. So in three years, those chiefs will be dead. Uh, Guy Asuta will have branched off in rebellion against the uh, Iroquois Confederacy, uh, again, fighting with the French against the British. And it sort of goes from there, I suppose. The long end of the, the story is George Washington becomes president of the United States. His worldview reigns supreme. Guy Asuta dies right around the same time. Uh, seeing the world that he once knew absolutely devastated. So it's an interesting dichotomy. Washington appears in this book uh, 
for that purpose. It, it reveals a, a great new layer to the story, I think. Did he travel with Washington? I mean, was he his group assisting Washington in, in his mission the first time? They were effectively guides uh, for Washington and his men. Washington had a little less than a dozen men, all from Virginia, he himself included. Guy Asuta was just described as Washington as the hunter in his journal. Uh, there were three elder chiefs and Guy Asuta with them. They were effectively marching with Washington in solidarity against the French saying you have no right to build forts in the Ohio country, this is British territory. Uh, it was very much a last gasp by the Iroquois to show that we still control the Ohio country. Because in reality, the ground they stood on beneath their feet was falling away. The subjects that made them an empire were preparing to rebel against them. Was, was Guy Suda at Jumonville Glen? This is where the story gets difficult. We only have, again, European accounts of where Gaiasut is and when he's there. Um, and there is no account placing him there. But Jumonville Glen was a very chaotic scene, uh, very traumatic in a lot of ways. There probably wouldn't have been a mention of him because he was just a relatively unknown commodity at the time. So the story will take you through the seminal events. Uh, whether he is there or isn't there doesn't change the story so much because he would have been playing uh, what I would describe as an auxiliary role. Can you just refresh people's memory about what happened at Jumonville Glen? Absolutely. Jumonville Glen uh, is again one of the great blunders that George Washington will have in his early career which consequently or incidentally happens here in western Pennsylvania quite frequently for him. Uh, the year is 1754. Uh, in 53, he marches to Fort Le Bouffe, which we just talked about, and then he'll be uh, repulsed, effectively. He'll be asked to leave. He's a diplomat. He goes back to Virginia. He receives a promotion, despite his failures, and he marches his way back into the Ohio country to try and capture the forks of the Ohio, or what is today Pittsburgh, the point. Uh, while he's there, there's a series of mishaps. The French will build Fort Duquesne on the site and they will send a diplomatic envoy out of Fort Duquesne to uh, meet Washington and do basically the job that he was assigned to do a year earlier. Uh, some of Washington's Iroquois guides will tell him the French are marching southward to meet you. Uh, they'll uh, meet at a place that's today called Jumonville Glen. It's a small uh, crater, if you would, in the middle of the forest. When Washington finds the French, the French are encamped. They don't know Washington and his Iroquois are, are there. Uh, a small firefight breaks out. Again, it's a diplomatic party. Washington has no right to attack them. Uh, but he gets the situation, what he believes to be under control as much as possible. Now, while this is happening, sort of the action has died down while they're sorting out the details. Washington doesn't speak French. The French commander, Jumonville, does not speak English. The only person that really speaks both languages is the Iroquois chief, Tanacherison, or the half-king. Uh, Tanner Cherison will take the diplomat Jumonville and he'll say to him, Tu ne pas encore mort, mon père. He says, uh, Thou art not yet dead, my brother. Uh, and he'll smash his skull. It's a very gruesome scene, but it's a very deeply symbolic scene. Because what, uh, what uh, Tanner Cherison is saying there is, uh, You have aided uh, our subjects in rebelling against us. We are officially the Iroquois declaring war on you, the French. Again, very difficult. Uh, and, and bloody scene, Washington will never forget it. But it, it's indicative of the time period, uh, just how, again, uh, complicated it tends to be. Did the Iroquois know, did Tenet Cherison know that the Western Iroquois were siding with the French at the time? 
he would have known. He was given a title called Half King. And what that meant was he was sort of the Iroquois Confederacy's regional representative in the Ohio country. So while back in upstate New York near Syracuse, where they kept their, uh, what we think of as a capital, their political center, uh, they never saw these rebellions stirring. For Tanacherison, however, as the leading Iroquois uh, figure in the region, he, he saw that all, all the time. And he would be dead within a year of that, uh, as it turns out, just, just from old age. But he was kind of the last gasp effort to stop the rebellion, to keep the Iroquois Confederacy intact. Uh, at least free of rebellion. It was a failure, but that, that was at Jumonville, his, his last effort to do that. You paint a picture in, in the book of Fort Duquesne where people are sitting around and Gaia is there at the fort among the French. First of all, how, how often did he hang around with the French at Fort Duquesne? And we, why would he have been there? We tend to think of uh, this world as very divided. You have the French, the British, and now we're complicating it with these different Indian groups. Fort Duquesne was not a strong house. It was not a fort that could fend off a major attack. But the second that it arrived in the region, uh, it became a magnet for all the native peoples there because the French Empire was very much like a circulatory system based on waterways. They'd build forts along lakes and rivers that could always connect them immediately back to the capital of Quebec in Canada. And when you're on that waterway, when you're in that system, goods and supplies uh, that you wouldn't normally have, weapons, uh, alcohol will begin to filter in. So if you are in the Ohio country and you're not at Fort Duquesne, you're missing out on a lot of effectively free gifts, uh, things that you would need and want otherwise. Gayasuta, if he was preparing for war with his Mingo, the Delaware and the Shawnee doing the same with their chiefs, uh, would have really been missing out because the things they need to, again, perpetuate uh, the idea of rebellion and to execute a rebellion, you need weapons, you need supplies, the French are giving these to you, you have to be there. So that's the idea. So he was hanging out at Fort Duquesne and held by the French and they hear bagpipes in the distance. Yes. Uh, we're jumping ahead a bit to this French and Indian War. It's uh, at this point 1758. But what they're hearing at that time is Britain's great response to a war that they're losing from 1755 to 56 to 57. The Ohio country, it's becoming clear, uh, belongs to the French and more importantly to the Ohioans who are fighting with them. The Iroquois are losing, the British are losing. Gayasuta has a lot to be excited about at this point. But what they're hearing in that morning are bagpipes in the distance because what they're seeing is an advance column of General John Forbes's march out of Philadelphia, probably more uh, correctly Carlisle, to capture Fort Duquesne. Uh, this is led by a man named James Grant, who's a Scotsman as well, uh, and these are the Highland Brigades that he leads, and they are going to reconnoiter the position of Fort Duquesne. Uh, they're not supposed to engage them. The rest of the camp uh, is several hundred miles uh, to the east, uh, and uh, they get the idea that Fort Duquesne is so small they could capture it uh, relatively easily. So uh, what results is what we call the Battle of Fort Duquesne, and it is a complete disaster for the British. Uh, as they play their bagpipes rather than a trumpet sort or of a bugle, giveaway. Yeah, uh, to align themselves. Uh, there are very few French in the fort. There's probably less than 200. But what they don't count on are the hundreds of Indian warriors allied with the French around Fort Duquesne. So as uh, James Grant tries to maybe and foolishly execute an attack to capture the fort. Uh, they are descended upon by the various Indian warriors and the result is, is nothing short of a massacre. Now I did skip past the Braddock 
the Braddock attack. That was the Mingos who were involved with that? Following Jumonville Glen, uh, what you see by 1755 uh, is Britain's first real attempt to assert itself in a martial way, in a physical way in the Ohio country. So Edward Braddock will be a, a, a highly uh, lauded general. He will lead a group of men from Alexandria, Virginia into the wilds of western Pennsylvania. Uh, his plan is capture Fort Duquesne. Uh, when he gets about within eight miles of Pittsburgh, uh, he is, however, attacked, and his column is so thin and spread out uh, that it really turns into more of a rout. And when we think about this, we call it a major French victory, the Braddock's defeat, the Battle of the Monongahela. Uh, but the fact of the matter is there are about 300 French soldiers and about 600 to maybe even 700 Indian warriors. So you can say it's a French uh, victory, but again, that's a very limited way of looking at it, technically speaking. Uh, again, Washington is there. That's the second time he ever sees Gaiasuta. So Gaiasuta was at the Braddock attack Bra also? Gaiasuta was there. Uh, on this the time, side of the French. On the side of the French. This time he's firing at Washington. So it's an amazing thing that you see, uh, but again, very telling, very revealing. Now, um, was, was Gaiasuta part of the group that was attacking the, uh, the colonial settlers? Uh, yes. During this period, the French and Indian War? One of the ways that, that New France, what we'd say the French colonists in North America, believed they could defeat the British uh, was by using these Indians as auxiliaries rather than battlefield allies. When we think of European fighting, we think of people marching in formation. We think of bugles and we think of drums and, and muskets and, and, and so forth. Uh, that was never part of the, the Indian repertoire of fighting. The Indians were effective at quick, decisive strikes, ambush. Uh, they play by different rules, so it dra dramatically favors them most of the time. So the official policy coming out of Quebec really was to let the warriors of the allied Indians, the Ohioans, again the Mingo, Delaware, and Shawnee, uh, just really what we would call today terrorize the countryside, attack settlements, if you're English, make living in the Ohio country such a nightmare that you don't want to be there. That's the easiest way to do it. Very brutal event. Skyasuta was well known, uh, and again, he's in his uh, early 30s at that point, for leading a lot of uh, attacks on farms and homesteads. Uh, and whatever military outpost there could be at the time, it was a unique brand of fighting. Uh, again, by today's standards, we'd probably think of as, as terrorism in a way. Uh, but it complemented the French effort very well, the, the very strict uh, and, and calculated effort very well. Was, was Suta known by the British at the time? He would have been in the Seven Years' War. Again, he's still something of an unknown quantity. He is perhaps uh, seen as a leader of the Mingo people, the separatist Iroquois. But it's really not until the end of the war and the seven or so years after the war that he really becomes, as he approaches his 40s, a chief recognized by the native peoples entirely and as someone who's viewed as the British, interestingly enough, as an ally and a helpful character when the French are ultimately expelled from the continent. Were there battles between the Mingos and the other uh, Iroquois tribes? Well, the Seven Years' War in many ways was uh, a I mean, Did they fight directly regard. against each other at any um, point? You would see every major European battle uh, in, in the French and Indian War. There were always, again, native auxiliaries on the field of battle but they would be fighting each other in many cases. They'd be fighting the Europeans. They didn't engage each other as often, and it's very simply because they were so good at, at killing the British and French regulars. 
they really neither side had an answer for it. So you would never really see uh, an Iroquois and a Mingo battle or an Iroquois and a Shawnee battle necessarily. Uh, it just wasn't something that, that factored into the strategy of the war for either side. And uh, you say that when he was at um, Fort Duquesne, or it became clear that the British, the Forbes group, was going to take Fort Duquesne, he headed for the hills. Right. Throughout the, the French and Indian War, really for the first two years, what the British would call the years of defeat, Gaiasuto believed he made the absolute right call siding with the French. He and the other Ohioans. Uh, they've been empowered in such a way that I even describe their new empowerment as a social movement. I call the Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo the new Ohioans at that time because they have been so empowered by this European war. It becomes a cultural identity. But it seems like the right one. Uh, from 1754 to 55 to 56 to 57, the British are just losing every battle in North America. And from Gaiasuta's vantage point, it was clearly the right call. It was much better than remaining loyal to the Iroquois and losing this war. By the time we get to the capture of Fort Duquesne, however, uh, we see the collision of two different perspectives on war really emerge. Fort Duquesne, again, is not a strong house. It's only as strong as the river that connects it to other forts. The French always had it in their plans to abandon Fort Duquesne because they knew that the line of communication went the whole way back to uh, Quebec. They could just filter more troops in down the rivers and recapture it. That was not something that was in Gaiasuta's uh, proverbial lexicon, I guess you can say. He never allied with the French because he cared about the French values. He allied with the French uh, and will later ally with the British because that's what would give the best deal to his people. The French were a, a mechanism of success, but they weren't the success itself. So when the French said we we're going to abandon Fort Duquesne, John Forbes' group of several thousand uh, soldiers is far too big. Gaiasuta basically said, well, we can't abandon this. This is our home. This is the land we're fighting for. Uh, whenever the French made it very clear they weren't interested in, in, in staying, uh, then Gaiasuta said, then we are no longer going to fight with you. He took his Mingo, the Delaware and Shawnee of the region, allied with them, also followed, and the fall of Fort Duquesne was, was a foregone conclusion at that point. Did Domingo keep fighting anyone after that? Well, this is where it gets to be very interesting. We can fast forward all the way to 1763. That's the end of the French and Indian War, the global conflict of the Seven Years' War. And we see something we often call Pontiac's Rebellion occur. And this is a major rebellion that occurs throughout the Great Lakes and the Ohio country against all British forts. One of the most violent and horrific periods in American history. Uh, and what it is effectively uh, is an Indian uprising against the sole power on the continent, the British. Uh, now, Gaiasuta plays a very profound role in this and underrated, so much so, I really don't call it Pontiac's Rebellion in the book at all. I call it what it is. It's a general Indian insurgency. But here's what occurs. Fighting dies down in North America by 1761, and Gaiasuta ventures out of the Ohio country to the Great Lakes, which is an enormous hub of native activity, trade activity. And he tells the chiefs of the Great Lakes, uh, when the French leave, we will no longer be supplied the way that we're used to being supplied. The reason they have guns and, and food and supplies and alcohol is because the British are giving them and the French are giving them. They're competing for their affections in a way. And Gaiasuta says in 1761, this is going to stop. And that's a total collapse of the Indian economy if that happens. Uh, the Great Lakes peoples aren't receptive to it. Well, did they see the Great Lakes people see him as the enemy? Because he was... Uh, they don't. They were allied with the French as well. 
The Great Lakes people were a major French, uh, they were the first allies of the French before the Ohioans. Uh, but the British will actually send diplomats out to the Great Lakes and say, who is stirring this rebellion? And, and the Great Lakes chiefs will finger Gaiasuda. They will say, it is Gaiasuda. He is the bad bird amongst us, is what they say. Gaiasuda goes back to the Ohio country dejected. Two years later, what he predicted occurs. The British will cut off all, all gifts to the Indians, and the economy collapses. Pontiac, who would have been in attendance at Gaiasuda's earlier rallies two years earlier, gives basically the same speech, but now they see that the truth has been revealed. So what you have is Pontiac leading a rebellion in the Great Lakes. Gaiasuda really led the rebellion in the Ohio country. What that is, though, is the dying breath of that, that rebellion against the Iroquois we've talked about. The Iroquois weren't rebelling in Pontiac's rebellion or the Indian insurgency. The rebellion was those Ohioan groups that went all in with the French. They knew the Iroquois could crush them on their own, but with French assistance, they felt empowered to rebel. Since the French left, that was that group's last gasp, uh, an attempt at having some sort of a free life, and it failed. Well, how did Gaiasuta's rebellion in western Pennsylvania take place? What did they do? Uh, Gaiasuta and Pontiac both were on the same page with this. They believed that the British control of North America on the frontier was really just based on a few key positions with forts. And if you captured the forts, the rest would crumble as well. And they were absolutely correct. Uh, within a matter of three months, uh, Fort Detroit, the largest fort in the, in the west on the Great Lakes, was under siege. And Fort Pitt was under siege as well. Uh, the forts north of Fort Pitt that were formerly French forts, Fort Venango, Fort Presque Isle, Fort Le Bouffe, were all burned to the ground. The men inside were massacred in pretty horrendous ways. But they were right on in that estimation that if the forts fall, British control entirely falls as well. Pontiac never came to the Ohio country to execute this rebellion. And Gaiasuta, after 1763, never went to the Great Lakes. Uh, these weren't separate movements, but they were both the same movement led by two different peoples. Just a little sidebar, what did it mean to be a fort? I mean, if you went to Fort Leboeuf at the time or, or Venango, what would you have found? before it burned down. You would be, you'd be sorely disappointed if you were going there expecting what we think of as a fort. Uh, this is basically one tiny little bastion of defense in the middle of an ocean of wilderness as North America is described. Fort Le Boeuf is a good example. There was an outer wall. The walls were no more than probably 10 feet high and they were just tree trunks stacked next to each other. Uh, there was a small captain's quarter, maybe a prison, maybe some barracks, but uh, these were not enormous forts by any stretch of the imagination. Fort Pitt will be the first one that really brings that to the forefront of the Ohio country. But these forts were uh, the, the minimum you could have and still feel somewhat safe in a very alien world. What was the result of the, the rebellion? It was not very good. Uh, the, the rebellion itself was a failure. Fort Detroit never fell. Fort Pitt never fell. Uh, and because of that, there was really no traction gained. You had a huge refugee crisis of very scared Europeans as a result, but as the British Army gained control, Pontiac went into hiding. He went underground, so to speak, uh, as you'd see in any, any rebellion of this sort. Uh, he was sought out and he was killed. That's what you saw. And again, Gaiasut is a fascinating character because he's something of a visionary here. He understands that the British are in command uh, the old way of life is gone, that is, relying wholly on two European powers for goods. But what if you try to assimilate into a British culture in a way that would be beneficial for your people uh, and for the British? So he actually denies his Mingo identity at that point because the Iroquois clearly have won. 
and he reassumes himself as a Seneca Iroquois man, and he has some power and esteem still. They let him do that? They had no problem with it. It was an amazing thing, uh, but there was just nothing to gain by perpetuating a rebellion. Gaius Suda actually becomes a guide uh, for many speculators going down the Ohio River seeking fame and fortune with land speculation. And he does quite well in what I call the, the Pax Britannia, the, the, the peace of Britain after the war. You refer to him as a peace chief. Absolutely. Early on, yeah, you could say that. He fights for the first part of his life in his 30s against the British. Uh, but he does see that throughout, if there is a peaceful means, that still gives his people the best deal possible. It's the one you should pursue for the seven to eight years after Pontiac's rebellion or the Indian insurgency. Uh, he is a peaceful man. He meets with George Washington again for the last time in his life in 1770 along the banks of the Ohio in what is near today Wheeling, West Virginia. And they spend the evening together. There are two camps. They eat buffalo. They talk about the old days of the war. Again, both of them seemingly on an upward trend. But I think that therein lies the story, the tragedy of the fall of Indian America, where they both go from that point. But mentioning George Washington again, I have to read this sentence from your book. Uh, George Washington's great-grandfather, John Washington, did have a reputation as a conqueror a century earlier in Virginia with the nickname, I won't get this right, Conotacarius, or destroyer of villages. Not, not a man to mess with, I guess. No, and again, it kind of shows where Washington's from and where he's going. Uh, Washington has a lot of money. He has a lot of social mobility in British North America that most people don't. And even until 1772 and 73, he was very much trying to make his mark in the British world as a British gentleman. Uh, the money that was generated from the plantations made Washington one of the great land speculators of the day. And the only land worth speculating was the land of the Ohio country along the Ohio River Valley. Uh, the Ohio River Valley is the great unknown West, and there were fortunes to be made. Washington himself was made no secret that he wanted to make his fortune uh, in that territory. And a person like Guy Asuta, uh, if willing to be a guide, could have made a, a, a nice living for himself as a result. And I do have to ask you about the Battle of Bushy Run, because that was uh, Colonel Bouquet, who comes into the story later, was, was involved with that. Bushy Run was the effort by the British to stop the siege of Fort Pitt during the Indian Rebellion of 1763. So it is why Fort Pitt survives. But I think, and this book really illustrates that, it's something I wanted to really hammer home. There's much more meaning to the Battle of Bushy Run than we tend to think. I call the Battle of Bushy Run the last breath or the last stand of the new Ohioan. What you have at Bushy Run are the Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo peoples led by Gaiasuta fighting with everything they have uh, to stop this convoy from reaching Fort Pitt and saving it because this is a group of people that have been fighting British Redcoats for seven years. They went, again, all in, if we can say it in that way, against the Iroquois. If they lost, they very well could have been finished. The Iroquois were their imperial masters. We've seen things like that happen before. Bushy Run was uh, the Ohioans' way of saying the French may be gone, uh, but our rebellion still exists. We are doing this for us, not for them. We never were fighting for the French. And they lose very, very badly at Bushy Run. Uh, it's the physical end of the new Ohioan, as I call them. Um, and it's also the, uh, the time when Gaiasuta realizes that this path of rebellion is no longer a viable one. Why didn't Gaiasuta ever just take on the Iroquois directly? 
again, it was an interesting thing. He was, he was a man of, uh, of two worlds. His parents were Seneca. Uh, he was raised with the values of the Ohio country. Uh, that was never something that they could have done without French weapons and French supplies and French support. Uh, it's an amazing thing, but that sort of rebellion would have really not been possible uh, without the, the weapons, the supplies, the goods of some, some European backer. Much in the same way, uh, our own rebellion against the British would have been very difficult to be successful without French weapons and supplies at the same time. Uh, any re records about what Gaiasuta was like as a person, what he would have been like to be around? There really is no character description of him as far as his personality. Uh, I would say, based on other, other descriptions of other peoples, uh, he is very much a man of his day, an Indian warrior chief of his day. I would describe him as very severe, uh, not a man of great humor, because if you follow his life, as this book, uh, I think, hopefully executes, you see that uh, there were very good times and very bad times. Uh, each of them tend to be extremes of the other. So it's not a, not a humorous man, not by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I would say he'd have to be pretty, pretty focused, as you'd see any major political figure be through a life of 30 years, you know, being a, a powerful person. Can I ask you about yourself for a minute? You've been on this program before. What do you do when you're not writing history books? Uh, well, I'm a professor of history at uh, Robert Morris University. Uh, this may sound uh, boring, but when I'm not writing history books, I'm either planning to write a history book or I'm, uh, I'm reading history books. So, you know, that's my, that tends to be the, the length of my excitement. But um, uh, what do I do? That's, that's all. I'm, I spend a lot of time with my family. Uh, family is very big for my wife and I, so we, we do our best to, uh, to help out wherever we can. Where's Robert Morris University? Robert Morris University is just outside of Pittsburgh. It's near the Pittsburgh airport. And what do you teach there? What's, what's the courses? Uh, I, I focus on empire. I'm an imperial historian. Uh, so what I tend to get are the, the general uh, history classes. Uh, I'll teach early U.S. history. I'll teach world civilization. Empire as a theme is something that transcends throughout most of history. Uh, so I have a perspective on a lot of things that many people don't just because of the, the, uh, the light I tend to, to view them in. What number of book is this for you? Uh, that is three. And one was Fort Pitt, A Frontier History, for which you were on this program. What was the other one? My first book was uh, a study of George Washington's very first mission, the 1753 mission uh, to Fort LeBeouf. Incidentally, I always said that every chapter I've ever written has had Gaia Suda's name in it somewhere for some reason. So this was a matter of time. I think it shows though how, how meaningful of a figure he really is. What was Lord Dunsmore's war? Lord Dunmore's war is one of the most confusing and complicated topics in American history. Not because of what happens, but because we have trouble placing it. It's uh, on the eve of the American Revolution, we can say, uh, yet it's not part of the American Revolution. It does affect the outcome of the Revolution, but it's long before that. So here is Lord Dunmore's war uh, in a nutshell. In 1768, the British and Iroquois will sign an agreement called the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in which the Iroquois will basically give all of the land south of the Ohio River to Britain uh, for settlement and speculation. Now, the people who live south of the Ohio River are the Shawnee, subjects of the Iroquois, but not Iroquois themselves. So the Shawnee are living their lives. Uh, white settlers begin to pour in. They say, why are you here? 
Well, the Iroquois gave this to us, and the Shawnees will say, well, who are the Iroquois to give you our land? That's 1768, and that's, of course, making it simple. But what results is five years of very difficult life, uh, many instances of white-on-Indian violence, Indian-on-white violence in the area immediately south of the uh, Ohio River we think of today as West Virginia. Uh, as a result of this, the governor of Virginia, a really interesting man named John Murray, He's the fourth Earl of Dunmore, so they call him Lord Dunmore, uh, is particularly interested in expanding his own fortunes. And the way he wants to do it uh, is by gobbling up as much land as possible. Now, he views the uh, Indian violence, the outbursts, as a result of that 1768 treaty as his real chance. And, and Lord Dunmore is one of the great scoundrels of all of British history. and He comes at the worst possible time because he believes he has certain entitlements that he would have had maybe 50 years ago, but America's so close to revolution in 1774 that this just pushes many over the edge in Virginia. But here's Dunmore's plan. He's going to take the Virginia militia and march them to the Ohio River Valley to suppress the Indian rebellion that's occurring there. Uh, he wants to do it for two reasons. One is that once he defeats them, he thinks he will, and he, he does, uh, he'll be able to take all of that land for himself and advance his personal fortune, West Virginia entirely today, effectively. The other thing is, uh, he also sees that the American Revolution is heating up. He doesn't know the future, but we know it's, it's about a year away. So perhaps Dunmore thinks if he can maybe occupy the Virginia militia, because he only sends Americans, no redcoats, maybe that's a few less soldiers to fight against the British. So he sends them into the wilds of West Virginia to the Ohio River Valley. Uh, he'll send one group under the command of a man named Colonel Andrew Lewis through the mountains of West Virginia. He'll send another under his own command from Fort Pitt, uh, Pittsburgh today, down the Ohio River itself. They're supposed to meet up at a very strategic location on the Ohio River uh, that the native peoples call Two Endy Way, or the place or point between two waters. Uh, but the problem is the two groups never meet. Dunmore's few thousand men only get as far as Wheeling. Andrew Lewis's men do get to what the natives call Two Endy Way. Today we call Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And they're ambushed. They're ambushed by mostly Shawnee warriors, some Mingo warriors, led by a chief named Cornstalk. It's what I think to be, and I found nothing to dispute this yet, uh, the largest single uh, Indian battle in all of North American history that we know of. Uh, there's about 500 Indians, uh, and there's about 1,000 a thousand Virginia militiamen, but they fight at what we call the Battle of Point Pleasant. It's a nasty fight, it's a brutal fight. Uh, the Indians don't fare well because they're not fighting British regulars, they're fighting Americans who have seen the Indian style fighting. Uh, the Indian style fighting, as we think of it, is really sort of a uniquely American style fighting they both engage in. The long and short of it is the Battle of Point Pleasant is a victory for uh, Lord Dunmore's forces, even though he's not present. Uh, the two forces will continue to march on the rebellious Shawnee towns and they'll force the agreement of something called the Treaty of Camp Charlotte. And this is where it's very important that we deal with the American Revolution. At the Treaty of Camp Charlotte, Dunmore says, uh, one, you give us all your land, we beat you. That was his sort of overarching plan all along. They do. And the second part, which is very compelling, is that he asks the Shawnee and the Mingo that they remain neutral if there is any sort of American rebellion stirring. Now this is interesting because Dunmore knows the Iroquois will probably side with them. 
Okay, but he also knows that the Americans cannot have an Indian ally. So he asked for neutrality here in 74, and they give it to him. And interestingly enough, even though the ball keeps bouncing and Lexington and Concord happens and all of those things, in the earliest years of the American Revolution, at least in the West, the Americans have no real Indian enemy. If there was, they would have never gotten off the ground. The revolution was so precarious in 75 and 76. To have to fight two enemies, the British in the East, the Natives in the West, would have been untenable. But the Ohioans stuck to that Treaty of Camp Charlotte, and they did not fight the Americans for the first two years based on that. So it's an interesting idea. If you, if you go to the Battle of Point Pleasant, which is really the only battle of Dunmore's War, you're going to see a lot of signs that say, this is the first battle of the American Revolution. And it's very, it's very taxing, it's very cumbersome to explain it. That was sort of devised by some state officials in the 1950s to get funding for the site. There's a nice visitor center, a nice obelisk. Uh, the battle was not the first battle of the American Revolution, but it did have a lot to do with, at least the outcome did, because it let the American Rebellion go without fear of Indian reprisal. And that can't say enough. So even though Dunmore despised the American people and the American Rebellion, he unknowingly, in his own greed in a way with that treaty, uh, kept them afloat for the first two years. Was Guy Asuda involved in any of that? Was he still the, the Sashim of the, um, of the Mingos? Guy Asuda was, by 74, in his 50s. He's still in his fighting years at the end of it. He had become one of the premier diplomats on the frontier for the British world. Uh, he had the job of trying to subdue the Shawnee before this rebellion really picked up, before Dunmore's War ever really started. But Guy Asuda will have that position as really chief diplomat of the frontier through the earliest days of the revolution. For the Iroquois, even though they are traditional British allies, uh, neutrality was the key in the American Revolution early on because they weren't sure who would really give them the best deal. The Americans uh, seemed to be more prescient, maybe have more opportunity. The British had a legacy of, of commitment to them. It's very hard to say. And even though they ultimately side with the British, Guy Asuta would venture from Fort Pitt in Pittsburgh to Fort Niagara uh, in Youngstown, New York, near Niagara Falls, New York, uh, on foot, uh, time after time, trying to keep the Iroquois neutral as a diplomat. It went so far, and the Americans appreciated his work so much, they actually gave him a commission as a colonel in the Continental Army of George Washington, Guy Asuta, right? Colonel Guy Asuta. So, I mean, he was a very real, very important diplomat early on. Ultimately, he would fight against the Americans. But it's just one of the great stories in his life that's, I think, so telling about the period. How did he end up fighting against the Americans if they gave him this commission? He was very excited about the commission, personally. They say till the day he died, he wore the medal or the gorget, this the neck piece they gave him. Um, but he was still part of the Iroquois Confederacy. And the American Revolution is very interesting because we all think of American independence as a direct result of it. But it also has many other trickle-down effects, one of them being the death of the Iroquois Confederacy. The Iroquois Confederacy was six nations allied uh, for political advancement. But when the revolution begins and sides begin to be taken, uh, two of the six nations side with the Americans, largely because of uh, their connections with a man named Samuel Kirkland, who's a missionary. They uh, had that close association. You say he gave a pretty inspiring speech that tipped the balance of, in, in one that. particular meeting that this Samuel Kirkland did. Oh, Kirkland, yes. Kirkland was, uh, again, a missionary. He worked mostly with the Oneida and the Tuscarora. Uh, and it's one of the interesting parts of empire, the, the Christian faith that was, he was promoting. 
the unique American brand of Christianity that valued personal freedom, independence, Protestantism in that way, really did sway them over. So what you saw was four Iroquois nations go one way, uh, the Tuscarora and the Oneida go the other, and the American Revolution was really an Iroquois civil war. Gaiasuta Seneca people sided with the British. He would have done that as well for that reason. Um, again, protecting his own power in a way. If the Confederacy is strong, he too remains powerful. Uh, but that's what you ultimately see. It was, it was really out of his hands at that point. And he wasn't sure that he had much to gain from the Americans personally. How involved was he in the Revolutionary War? Well, he's in his mid-50s at the time. Uh, he is fighting in some battles. The Battle of Oriskany in upstate New York, he does take place. And it's the first time that Iroquois fights in Iroquois in that way. It's the, it's the first happening. Uh, but that torch has really been passed in terms of the actual fighting to people like his nephew Cornplanter, uh, people in the age group that he was in the French and Indian War. Uh, Gaiasuta does believe in the cause. Uh, he is very much on board ideologically, but the times and, and signs of age are starting to catch up with him in that way. And it'll be the last time he really takes the field of battle from there. But he's still very involved in the politics of the war. You describe a couple of battles that took place after Yorktown. Um and I, uh, Fallen Timbers, uh, Hannestown. Gaiasuta, and it's important to remember this, you'll never understand the period if you, if you can't put this front and center. The Indians will never ally with a European power for the sake of that power. It's always because they're the avenue of success for them. So when Gaiasuta and the Iroquois side with the British, uh, they do so under the pretenses that they will directly benefit from that alliance. And one of the ways that Gaiasuta really believes he stood to benefit uh, was by strengthening of property rights for native peoples. Well, in 1779, George Washington executes what I think to be one of his most brutal but successful campaigns ever, when he marches three forces through Iroquois land and burns every village and home they see. I mean, he physically destroys Iroquois in that way. Uh, it's an incredibly destructive raid that he uh, executes. Daniel Broadhead will lead one wing up the Allegheny River, uh, wiping out Mingo villages. Uh, Sullivan and Clinton will go through uh, eastern New York, moving westward, wiping out those villages. Well, Gaiasuta will say to the British, my homeland has been destroyed. Uh, we've been fighting for your cause. It's time you fight for ours. And this is at Fort Niagara by 1780, and the British will basically say, we're not wasting our time d defending Indian land. And Gaiasuda will leave at that point and take matters into his own hands. What he will do is, in seeking retribution for the Iroquois homes burned, the Mingo homes burned, he and some loyalist Americans uh, will march on what is Pennsylvania's or Western Pennsylvania's second biggest city called Hannestown. Pittsburgh is the biggest, Hannestown is the next biggest, and he will burn Hannestown to the ground as a result. Um, and there are some other atrocities committed by the Americans toward the Indians that the British weren't interested in avenging. Uh, but again, if you, if you view it from the perspective of him operating to benefit himself and his people alone, only siding with the British for assistance or aid, that, that becomes much more prescient. But that occurs uh, months after the fall of Yorktown, which we traditionally say is the end of the war. There's still two years of fighting left. Those two years were Indian wars in the Ohio country. At what point did Gaiasuta say, okay, I'm done fighting, it's over? The Americans earned their independence, and uh, the old Iroquois world is gone. The fall of Indian America has be begun really in a true way. Some of the Iroquois will go into Canada. 
Uh, others will remain and try to be allies with the Americans. Uh, the Ohioans that we've talked about, the Delaware and Shawnee, many of the Great Lakes peoples as well, this is their last stand against this new United States. And they form what they call the Western Confederacy of Indian Nations. It's the, the Great Lakes peoples and the Ohioan peoples. And their plan is to basically do what Gayasutta tried to do 30 years earlier in Pontiac's rebellion, a massive uh, rebellion at that time. Gayasutta will spend his final years, he'll be dead within, probably within six years of when the violence really picks up. He'll spend those final years going to uh, these young warriors, he's in his 60s, going on 70s, and telling them, you can't win this way. I've tried. I've tried it throughout two wars. I have two generations of experience. Uh, but those Indian warriors aren't willing to listen. Uh, it's the first war the United States of America really ever is engaged in. Washington sends a massive force uh, under uh, Anthony Wayne into the Ohio country and obliterates the Western Confederacy. And that's really, that's where I end the book because that is the official end of what Gayasuda would have recognized as his Indian world. They're forcibly signed into a, a peace agreement which gives up almost all of the Ohio country to the Americans. They're forced uh, toward the Mississippi as refugees at that point. Now, the, the part of the title of your book is The Fall of Indian America. Was it the result of them siding with the wrong people or was it inevitable? We like to say there is no inevitability in history. Uh, there's always contingencies and secondary actions. People always have the choice. Um, but it's an, interesting, it's an interesting process. One of the reviews of the book uh, said it very well, and I'm jealous of the line, but they said that uh, the uh, American nation could not have been built if not for standing on the ruins of many broken nations beneath them. And that, of course, is referencing the Indian peoples that I'm dealing with in this book. Um, it's hard to say. We can't speculate. Gayasutta, in my opinion, had success when he made those decisions. Uh, early on in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, Gayasutta had nothing but success with the French alliance. Uh, early on in the American Revolution, they were very successful. New York State was one of the most horrifying and bloody places for an American to be because of the Indians who lived in the Mohawk River Valley, Gayasutta included at that time. It's hard to say what he could have done differently. It's, it, it is uh, somewhat stirring, though, to think that uh, as our American worldview prevailed over a period of 200 years, the Indian world was fairly violently and, and terribly chipped away piece by piece. Now, for all of the battles that Gayasutta was in in his life, he died of natural causes? Gayasutta would have, during that last great Indian war, the Northwest Indian War, the last chapter of the book, was in his 70s. He had a small plantation, we would call it, it's a small homestead, just north of the city of Pittsburgh at today's Sharps, uh, Sharpsburg. There's a large statue of him there. It's, it's impressive to see it. Again, not well understood. Uh, he had two wives. He would come into the city of Pittsburgh every day for alcohol. Um, it's really, it's, it's a sad ending in that um, he doesn't have this glorious finish. The people of Pittsburgh in the 1790s knew him as the bumbling drunk Indian who wandered around town. Uh, it's certainly not an ending befitting of his life, but again, it's very telling in the greater scope of, of what he saw in his lifetime. When I asked you what you did when you're not uh, teaching, or you're, you, you write uh, a lot, what are you working on next? I'm very excited about this next project. Um, and it's an amazing thing in that I always look for situations in the colonial period we think we understand well, uh, but that could use a, a modern perspective or a modern once over. And one of the things I found was that 
work on the Hessian soldiers of the American Revolution have been very, very quiet for the last 50 years. Um, and it's something that I've, I'm really digging into right now uh, and amazingly complicated and very, very, uh, very, again, revealing look at uh, of a group of people we think we understand these German soldiers fighting against the American rebels. But um, we could probably look for that 2015, I would think. Well, we'll have to have you back yeah, when absolutely. that book comes out. Well, thank you very much for being on our program. We've been talking with Brady Kreitzer. He is the author of this fascinating book, Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.